you're listening to Secrets of Data Analytics Leaders. These NoSQL solutions have their place, but it's for a limited use case. And maybe 90% of the use cases are going to use a relational database. Welcome, everyone. James Sarah is a big data and data warehousing solutions architect at Microsoft with over 30 years of IT experience. James is a popular blogger and speaker, having presented at dozens of Microsoft Pass and other events. And prior to Microsoft, he was an independent data warehousing and business intelligence architect and developer. Now, I know from spending uh, a number of hours with James that he spends a lot of time talking with Microsoft customers and prospects about how to design data analytics environments using Microsoft technologies. As a result, I thought it would be great to bring James here today to talk about some of the common questions he gets and assumptions people make when designing data environments, and then ask him whether those assumptions are myths or reality. So James, welcome to the show. Thanks. I'm real happy to have this conversation. It should be fun. Well, let's dive into some of these myths of modern data management, things you've been hearing from customers and prospects. Uh, probably the top one that you and I discussed was this comment, all we need is a data lake. Why do you think that's a myth and uh, how would you like to address that? Sure. I, I've seen a number of customers come up with that myth and have tried to implement, implement a solution just in a data lake bypassing the relational data database system in there. And they've always failed because of a number of reasons. One of the biggest is you delve into a data lake, you're looking at Hadoop technologies, and it's a world that many end users don't know anything about. And if you go out and think about a data lake usually built in Hadoop, and Hadoop is just a glorified file folder. So if you just create a bunch of folders and slap in some files and ask an end user, hey, go fire up Hive and create a metadata store and use PIG to clean it, and there you go. Well. 99% of end users have no idea how to do that. So a data lake is great for a number of reasons, one of them being giving certain end users quick access to the data, but that's limited to the data scientists and the very powerful end users who are familiar with those tools. Most of all the other end users want the data into a relational database management system maybe going to the point where you create a star schema in the cube so they can just go to a blank canvas, list fields that they want in a report, drag them over there, and they can start creating reports and dashboards. So it, <clears throat> I always recommend data lakes are great in combination with a data warehouse. So it's the best of both worlds. So you can have quick access to the data for those power users and then have a relational database system where those other users can have access to it. The great thing about data lake is it's a schema on read, so I can put data in there in its raw format, and I don't have to do anything up front. But you have to pay the piper somewhere. So schema on reads means when I pull the data out, I do have to give a schema that doesn't go away. And that's where the complexity comes in. Many end users are not able to do that and don't want to do that. And so the cases where you, you need IT to do that for, for them, and that's where the relational database comes in there. But by having that data lake as a staging area, an exploratory area, for the end users that can deal with the data in that way. It's a great spot for them, and then move that data, copy it to a relation database for everybody else. So James, uh, does that mean uh, you don't need a data warehouse anymore? That's another common myth that we hear out there. 
Yeah, and when I hear people say, is a data warehouse dead, I think what they really mean to say is a traditional data warehouse dead, meaning the relational data warehouse. And that's where, in the previous question, I answered that you do still need that. And the fact up front is you definitely need a data warehouse in there. There's same reasons apply now as in the past of why I want to have a data warehouse. It, such things that reduces stress on the production system. It's a way to integrate many sources of data. It's a way to keep historical records. It's a great way to rename tables when you bring them over from source systems. And you give them better naming conventions in there for end users to pull data out of there. It protects you against source system upgrades. It is a, a place to do master data management. It's where you do your data quality. And it becomes one version of the truth. And that's why we recommend the customers to have an enterprise data warehouse as that version of the truth. And from there, you can export data out into cubes or data marts and use them for specific areas of your business. But the enterprise data warehouse is where to collect it all and make that a single version of the truth. And they're needed now more than ever because of the proliferation of other sources of data, whether they be Internet of Things devices or facial, Facebook and Twitter data competitor data, weather data, it just goes on and on. And the way to get great value out of this data and become, to be able to make better business decisions is to have this various types of data in one data warehouse in there. So those end users can query this data and, and get better value of it. You'll hear a lot of people say now data is the new currency, the new gold, and the oil. All these come out as a way to understand how to get ahead in your industry is to make better use of this data. To the point now, a lot of companies I deal with at Microsoft, they go through all this work, they create this large data warehouse, and they not only use it for their own internal usage, but they start reselling the data because they realize how valuable it is, and they're sort of making a secondary business on collecting all this data and reselling it to others. Okay, so you're advocating for having a kind of a dual environment with a data lake as your ingest and landing staging area. Uh, data science sandbox and then a data warehouse for your refined data that's been validated, cleaned, uh, and designed for reporting and analysis. So exactly, yeah. So exactly. so integrated environment. We we recommend the same thing to our clients. One question always comes up though is: Should you move all of your data? You know, both from uh, all of your source data. Uh, both relational, non-relational sources into the data lake first before you move it into the data warehouse? Or can you or should you move some of that data, like the relational sources, right into the data warehouse and just skip the data lake, which then becomes really a place where you put all your non-structured data? Do you have any recommendations along those lines? Sure. I hear that question the same. And it's because, think of a customer who maybe has a large data warehouse on-prem and they're moving it to the cloud, and they are expanding it out to include a data lake. And they've written all these packages, maybe SSIS packages and such, to move all this data to a data warehouse. If we go to them and say well, every one of those packages, which sometimes could be thousands, has to be changed to also move it to the data lake and then to the data warehouse, it's going to be a lot of extra work. So what's the value of that? Well, you only get value of that if you're, you, that data needs to be in a data lake because it needs to be kind or combined with others. 
So some customers, they sort of use the data lake switched where the data goes all the data warehouse and then goes to the data lake. And they do that because they want to incorporate, as you mentioned, non-relational, semi-structured data. They can't put that in a data warehouse, so they put it in a data lake, but then they go, well, okay, we generate reports off of that, but we also want to combine it with some data that's in a data warehouse. So in that case, some of that data from the data warehouse will go into the data lake copied, so it's kind of reversed the process. What I certainly bring up front is there is no reason that you have to move all the data from your source systems in the data lake. Maybe over time you can get to that point, but let's get something up and running as quick as possible, and that will limit the data that goes in the data lake in there. So it's the case-by-case -case basis, but when you're dealing with a lot of relational databases, and many times those will skip the data lake and go right to the data warehouse. Yeah, especially if you already have ETL written for it, as, as you say. Uh, I've also seen cases where companies, you know, they want all the data in the data lake, but they don't want to take relational data, basically unpack it into a file format and then repack it and put it back into a relational format. So they'll yeah. rep replicate uh, that source data, relational data, and they'll, and they'll shunt one copy to the relational data warehouse and one copy into the data lake. Uh, that's another way to get around that issue where you want all your data in the data lake for your data scientists, um, but you don't have to, you know, make more work for yourself by, you know, yeah. uh, unformatting and reformatting that relational data. That would be for new sources. Yeah, yeah exactly. The reality is you, I can't propose this is one solution to solve everything. It's going to be on a case-by-case -case basis. and There's going to be a lot of exceptions to what's, quote, the normal modern-day warehouse architecture in there. A lot of it is just deals especially with migrations, and they've already got those things built. And now we're going to say, well, what's the value of adding this extra work in there? So I'm in total agreement on that. And it's a big difference between migrating what you already have and creating a new solution. And reality is 90% of the customers are migrating, so they have to take those things into account. Now, here's another issue that I've run across a lot, which is, all right, you've built something in your data lake. You know, either your data scientists or your data analysts in their sandbox areas or elsewhere. And now you want to productionize it because other people in the company want access to it. Where do you productionize it? In the data lake where the data already exists uh, and, you, and, and you're already built something? Or do you kind of reproduce all of that data and logic in a data warehouse? Have any thoughts on that? Sure. And I like to think at a high level that data lake as your staging and preparation area and your data warehouse as your serving presentation layer and also for security and compliance because the data warehouse has a lot easier mechanisms for security compared to a data lake and Hadoop mainly because Hadoop is file based and you can't take a file that has got all its information maybe by department and make it row accessible for only for certain people and that's where it gets moved to the data warehouse. And because of the complexity of generating reporting, having to use Hadoop tools makes the data lake not ideal for reporting. So you combine the two. But how, however, you can have those power users access the data lake and you give security. And generally, it's limited to a handful of people because it's also so difficult to, to do the security in the data lake. And for people to easily make mistakes, because if I just dump a bunch of files in there, they have to. And a schema on read, they have to know what this data is. They have to know 
how to clean it, how to join it with others, how to master it. So all that work's got to be known in the, end, the power user's head where data warehouse IT does all that work. So I generally break it out in those two, but it's the best of both worlds because you can't have certain people access the data lake. And then you also have to think of it is in terms of the data lake gives you the ability to go and use the data when you don't really know the questions to ask. You've seen this data, but you haven't played with it. Let's go in there. Let's see if this has value. Let's find out some questions to ask this data. That's opposed to a data warehouse where you know the questions to ask. I'm going to create this dashboard. It's going to look like this. I'll do the work up front. I'll move it into there. So the data lake becomes more of an exploratory sandbox and also deals a lot with predicting and, and machine learning. That A lot of that goes into the data lake for the data scientists to use where the data warehouse is generally looking at the past. What happened and why did it happen? And so you separate those two out and you just think of that functionality when you're building out your solutions and that separation of tasks. Now, to be fair, you know, a lot of enhancements have been made to Hadoop in terms of security, in terms of SQL support, in terms of metadata, so you can get more traditional uh, relational type views in there, uh, the ability to create tables using parquet files. Uh, the reality is that, from what I see, is that these two environments, relational and Hadoop, they're, they're kind of converging in functionality. They'll never completely converge. So I think the, the workloads that you talked about make a lot of sense. Um, but I'm seeing more and more people understand that uh, it's harder and harder to distinguish what you can and can't do in each environment because they're starting to mimic each other in many ways. Let me let's let's move on here. Uh, another myth is that we hear often is that we don't need OLAP cubes anymore, and I'm wondering what you think of that, especially from Microsoft that uh, has moved their analysis services into the cloud, but it's not a cube; it's uh, it's in a tabular format. So, is that a myth or is that reality? It's a myth, and we have the tabular model, which is in essence, a type of cube, well, we don't use that word, in that it aggregates data and summarizes it. So you'll process this data into this tabular model or a multidimensional cube, and it's going to be much faster because it is a summary of data than you would hitting a, a data warehouse or a, a data lake in there. So if I'm going to build out a dashboard where I need millisecond response time, because when a and user is slicing and dicing. They don't want to wait, wait a couple seconds. You're generally not going to get that with a data warehouse. And the cube will be the one that you want to attach that dashboard to to get the millisecond response time. In addition, it forces you to create the semantic layer on top of the data so it makes it much easier to use the data because you're pre-joining everything and taking the complexity out of the end user's hands and putting it in the cube so they can do that self-service BI by using the cube and just dragging fields to a canvas to create the reports. You also get benefits inherent in the cube that you don't have in a data warehouse, such as hierarchies, KPIs, key performance indicators, certain additional security, advanced time calculations. All these things come into a play into a cube or a tabular model. And so in most of our customer solutions, they have a data warehouse, and that's used for operational reporting, ad hoc queries, and then for dashboarding, or queries that are very predetermined. 
that need to be millisecond response time, the data from the data warehouse is put into a tabular model or a cube and then queried through that dashboard right. or those fast queries. So you're equating cubes with tabular models, which by definition are tables, right? Uh, but they're running in memory, so they're really fast and you're not pre-calculating stuff, I assume. You're kind of aggregating on demand, right? Well, there's some confusion because Microsoft had analysis services, which was multi-dimensional. Then they came out with a tabular model using DAX, which was much easier, easier to use than MDX. And the concept behind the scenes is the same as you're aggregating the data. In a tabular model, it does all this all in memory, so it's extremely fast. It does have some limitations, but over the years, they've come closer to being all the functionality of what a multidimensional model has. And maybe one of the limitations would be, hey, you're only whatever you can put in memory, you're limited. And once you go above that, the, the, this tabular model could be slow, although the compression is very high when it puts in the memory. So you can fit pretty big tables inside of a tabular model. But the idea is the same as once it's in a tabular model or a multi-dimensional model, it's an aggregation of the data. It's very fast performing. And you're doing the work to remove the joins. You're doing the joins when you're building out this tabular model and taking away the complexity from the end user. Yeah. Is there a limit on the amount of data you can put into uh, analysis services in the cloud? Is there like a one gigabyte or 40 gigabyte limit? Yeah, there are service tiers and they've changed them. And I don't have the top of my head, but there is a size limit because it's based on memory. Right. And those different performance tiers, you can scale up and down and pay more obviously for the higher performance tiers, but they allow for larger cubes, gotcha. or I should say tabular models. All right, let's shift gears a little bit. Microsoft's obviously a big advocate of a public cloud. It's got its own public cloud platform called Azure. Uh, and I know you talk to a lot of folks who are peddling myths, so to speak, about the cloud, uh, at least from Microsoft's perspective. For instance, the cloud is too insecure, it's too expensive. Uh, the latency to get data up and back uh, to company data center is, is too slow and too costly. Are, are these myths or are these reality? Most are myths. There's one in there that is a reality. So I'll start with the reality one is to get data into the cloud. Obviously, if the data is born on-prem, you're going to have to put a copy of that into the cloud. Although we do see most solutions now are using cloud-born data, there's still plenty of data that is on-prem and will continue to be. So now we have the complexity of moving that data to the cloud if we have our data warehouse or data lake in the cloud. So what does that entail? Well, it's only going to go as fast as the pipe between your on-prem and our Azure cloud. And so if you have a slow pipe, you're going to have issues. There are ways to increase that pipe. We have a thing called Express Route, which essentially gives you the ability to transfer a large amount of data at an extra cost, and it can also be redundant. So what we'll see companies do if they are pumping out many terabytes or gigabytes of data, they will have Express Route and they will upload it. But they won't do it just at the end of the day like you do in a traditional data warehouse. Ways around that are you can upload it during the day. And so you can have every hour or so put the data up there so you're not having to do it all at once. So there are many little solutions like that to avoid having pipe between your on-prem and in the cloud be a barrier to moving things there. 
and especially with our products where you can scale them up. So a lot of clients will move data, import it, and, and while they're doing that, they scale up the product they're using, and then they'll scale it back down and have people use and users start doing reporting off of it, but they need that get that in there quick, and that's one of the benefits of the cloud is you can scale up or down where you can't do that on-prem. The other ones that are myths are things like security. The cloud is way more secure than anything I've ever seen on-prem, not even the same ballpark, and many times we talk to CEOs, CTOs, who think they have pretty secure data center, and then we have them go visit one of our data centers, and they, they walk away realizing just how much hyperscale goes into this cloud data centers in there, as well as various groups we have in Microsoft that are monitoring the cloud for people trying to hack in and denial of service and viruses and all that. I've seen those on my own through tours, and we, we open up clients to seeing that because you can imagine if Azure ever got hacked, how much that would cost and lost revenue because people would feel that it's not secure enough. So the level we go to where we have people monitoring and firewalls and anti-detection devices in there is, is just insane. And then as you get into high availability and disaster recovery, what we have in place for that is at a much grander scale than anything that everybody's done on-prem. And then it gets into the other question you ask is, is about some of the benefits and some of the myths. What people don't think about too is the, is the myth a lot of times is the cost. They think the cloud costs more, but it's pay-as-you-go service, so you're not paying anything up front. Now, the pay-as-you-can-go can get expensive, but you get the benefit of not having to predetermine amount of dollars. You also get the ability to scale up, so you're not having to buy in the biggest machines. And then you have things like unlimited scalability with some of our storage solutions. But then there's a lot of things you can't really put a dollar figure on that you get in the cloud, such as if I want to build a solution, if I need to do it on-prem, I need to order the hardware and rack it and stack it and install everything and configure everything, which takes weeks or months. In the cloud, I can go in there and in a couple of clicks and two minutes I have these servers available. So what is the benefit in monetary figures of building a solution quicker? You really can't put a figure on there. The ability to scale up and down, even some of our solutions, you can pause them. You can't really put a monetary figure on that, but all these additional benefits that come into the cloud have all these indirect costs. And right. so that's another thing to keep in mind. Right. Uh, I, I, there are a lot of variables that go into cloud-based pricing. And I've heard that the break-even point is 2.3 years, but I think that's hard to actually determine on average. Yeah. What, what I have seen is that uh, you just have to be a lot more alert when using the public cloud, because if you don't turn things off that you're not using, it will cost more. So you do have to be judicious um, about what you're managing and make sure you're only paying for what you're using and not paying for things you're not using. Yeah, sure. It's, it's kind of a double-edged sword there because you have that ability to fire things up quickly, but you also have the ability to forget you have them. Yeah. And you can save money by pausing them or shutting them down, but you have to remember to do that. And we've come a long way at Microsoft with having tools to automate that, even going to the dashboard, and you can specify when a machine should be sh shut down and when it should restart. Of course, you know, use PowerShell to do that. And then we've even gone to the point where we've, we've purchased companies where we offer these tools for free, where it'll look at your environment and it'll come back and say, well, you have these servers and you're only utilizing 10% of them. You should scale them down. Or this one's not used, used at all. So we're really big into now trying to save you money as one of the benefits 
moving in the cloud. So consolidation and understanding which servers are getting used and which are not. It may even tell you you should upgrade the scale on this server because it's being overutilized and such. So that's uh, it, so it's the cost savings that can come into play by having these additional tools available to you that generally are not on prem. Yeah, no, that's that's big win. Now, one thing I've been hearing lately is that the public clouds are not as reliable as enterprise computing environments uh, on premise are, or at least companies are used to having uh, a certain degree of uptime. Uh, and a minimum amount of outages. Have you heard this myth or maybe reality? The cloud and, and most of our products have these various SSLAs, everything from three nines to five nines. So they're generally a lot more reliable than anything you'll get on-prem. In addition, they, they could be made to have more reliability very easily. If you look at SQL Server, on-prem, you can set up availability groups to have other servers that have copies of the data, you can do that for disaster recovery or to scale out reads. And we have that ability in the cloud too, but we've gone an extra step. If you get into our PaaS solutions like SQL Database, was recently announced managed instance, it has all the features of SQL Server in addition it has built-in disaster recovery. So you go to a website and you have a picture of the map of the United States and you click on where you want to have a copy of that data and you hit go, and within a few minutes, that secondary server is set up. So to create disaster recovery in the cloud is so much easier. And again, how do you put a cost on that where you save all this manpower, not only in setting it up, but of maintaining it. It's all done by Microsoft. So you can have a lot more choices of disaster recovery, and they're a lot more simplified in the cloud. Talking more about different myths, if we move from the cloud to databases, uh, some people are saying that you should use NoSQL databases instead of relational databases. What do you think, true or not? It's not true. And a lot of new technology that comes out, as Gartner has this, this trough that they show, where they say this is the solution to everything. Data lakes were like that, found that they were not used. Hadoop is very specific to, and data lakes were up to that staging area. And as I argue, you should also have a relational database. And the other one is NoSQL came out six or seven years ago. It's got a lot of media attention as it's going to replace your regular databases like SQL Server. And Microsoft has a product called CosmoDB. They're, it's equivalent to things like MongoDB and Cassandra. And they're great products, but they, their use case is limited to very high-performance solutions in there. These, they came around because... Before the internet was around, you would never have a solution that had more than a few thousand users. But when the internet came around and websites and, and mobile devices opened up these solutions like a Pokemon Go to millions of users. So maybe at the most transactions per second would be a couple thousand. Now they can go into millions. And SQL Server, great product, but it's not going to give you more than at tops a million transactions per second, even if it's on the best hardware. So what happens if I have 5 million and 10 million transactions per second? Yeah, you can do things like sharding and write a lot of code and complexity to get SQL Server to work, but that's where a product like CosmoDB came in, where it can support millions of transactions per second. It's all built in. It's auto-sharding. And it also has the ability to deal with data in JSON format, which to do that in SQL Server means you'd have to convert it. Now, they do support that in SQL Server 2017 JSON, but it's, it's not built for 
million transactions per second. So Cosmos DB, the NoSQL really shine when you have a lot of transactions per second and you have the data in JSON, especially when you're dealing with IoT devices. But the reality is if you have data and if you're talking about less than 100 terabytes of data and a few thousand transactions per second, any of the NoSQL solutions are going to be overkill because they're more expensive than relational databases in there. So when I talk to clients, I say these NoSQL solutions have their place, but it's for a limited use case. And maybe 90% of the use cases are going to use a relational database. NoSQL got a lot of play because of the Googles and the Yahoos using those products, but they're at a grand scale that many, almost all companies are not at. So that's why there was this great myth of use NoSQL for everything. But the reality is it's a great product for limited use case. All right, let me turn this back on you, James. Are there any other myths or, or common fallacies that you encounter on a regular basis that you'd like to address? We've hit on the major ones, and I would say the other one is moving to the cloud, cost benefits, but you still have the data governance that goes into building solutions. You still have upfront time in building out solutions. The cloud should not be seen as I can get something done quickly without much planning. I can build a solution without data, data governance. When you're getting into the data lake, which is great because it allows you to throw data into a data lake easily, but that's where it becomes a data swamp if you don't put data governance on top of that. And building out solutions, while well, you can start quicker in the cloud, it doesn't mean you bypass some of the standards that you do if you're building on-prem with making sure you're using the right products and the use, use cases. And the products in the cloud will be, you'll be used more of them to build a modern data warehouse. So it will require more upfront work. But by doing that and, and having multiple products gives you the flexibility to support all types of data, no matter what the size or the speed or the structure. So you can build solutions that are going to last a lot longer in the cloud by spending more time upfront creating an architecture, using more products, but gives you that flexibility so you're not having to go a year later and go, oh no, our data warehouse solution won't support all this. We've got to redo it all. Well said. There's no shortcuts when it comes to data management. No, yeah, that's it. <laughs> that's yeah. the short version of my long answer. Yeah, right. Well, James, uh, thank you so much for your time today. Appreciated having you on the show and, and hearing all your insights about the myths of modern data management. Always happy to talk about this. Thanks for having me on. Thanks for listening. If you like the podcast, please subscribe. If you want more content from business intelligence to data management to data science, browse to the Eckerson Group website at eckerson.com.